people who be here this evening, and uh, I'm very happy to open this uh, discussion this evening. Uh, this uh, uh, open uh, it's a lecture that is open to the public uh, in parallel to a, a seminar workshop that we have in two days today and tomorrow. Uh, on contemporary challenges to inter-religious and inter-cultural dialogue in Southeast Asia across cultural perspectives. And we had uh, people who, many of them are here with us today, coming from Southeast Asian uh, uh, countries and uh, uh, discussing inter-cultural interface uh, dynamics dialogue in Southeast Asia. Uh, we decided uh, that it was important for us to discuss a very specific topic, and this specific topic is what is happening these days in uh, Myanmar, and uh, uh, a very specific discussion about the relationship uh, between the Muslim and uh, Buddhist, or as it was put as the title, closing the Myanmar's Pandora box, resolving the Buddhist-Muslim conflict. Uh, just as an introduction, because the main talk will be uh, given by uh, my colleague, Dr. Matthew Walton, uh, just a few things that uh, I wanted to say as an introduction, because it's a very specific uh, uh, topic, yet what we see when talking about what is happening uh, in the region is many, many topics, many issues, are issues that we can tackle in other situation or uh, the relationships or the, the identity, for example, uh, uh, references everywhere uh, in the world. The first point that I wanted to make is very often reduce the discussion to a Buddhist uh, versus Buddhists versus Muslims and religious issues, which is not, in fact, the reality of the discussion. Even though we had this discussion this afternoon in the seminar, is when do we stop talking about spiritualities and religions and we start talking about only politics? And are we talking about uh, a doctrine and in which ways some doctrines, for example, can be used for political reasons? And, and this is where uh, the mainstream interpretation that we have of a religion or of a, a spirituality could be sometimes used and misused by some uh, uh, interpretations in order to justify things that are done, not for religious reasons, but justified by religious and uh, uh, spiritual uh, reasons. So, so we need to get a better understanding, and we had a presentation this afternoon by Dr. Walter that was very interesting, and I think that he will come back to this. This is the first thing that uh, we need to, to tackle. There is another discussion here when it comes to Myanmar, which is also a discussion that we have everywhere when it comes to the nation or belonging to the nation or be part of the nation. Where we have uh, people who see today that they, are, they, don't, they, they don't get the citizenship because they are not perceived as belonging to the nation and not really uh, uh, part of uh, uh, the society. And uh, many things are said about these people that are coming, uh, sometimes referring to uh, an alien presence, sometimes uh, uh, referring to migrants, and sometimes uh, referring to people who are threatening the very identity of the society. And by the way, someone said it this afternoon, but if you listen to what is said in some European countries, that's not alien to what we are uh, seeing, where we have, for example, 
uh, builders in the Netherlands, showing how uh, you know the exponential presence of Muslims is going to threaten the very identity of the country. And then at the end, meaning that these are people who are threatening our very uh, uh, the very meaning of our identity and our community. And it comes, of course, to the identity discussion, and we have to take this into account. So it's not religious, it's something that can be used for economy, because of economic reasons and other uh, reasons, and I think that Dr. Walton will talk about this. There's a last point that I wanted to make, and I hope that we'll open uh, uh, the discussion, is why such a silence around what is happening when it comes to the media coverage? And, and some of the figures, I was talking and I met uh, Ansan Sushi asking her, we were on your side uh, when, uh, you know, the army was repressing, why today the silence? And here, it's not only about the fact that uh, uh, there are many political reasons that we have to understand. Is this justifiable? Is the silence justifiable in this transitory period? Is a question uh, that we uh, have to ask in the light of something which is important, is the side effect of this war on terror and the way uh, now the fact that uh, there is potential terrorism uh, around the world is used against this presence and, and justifying sometimes the silence of some uh, leaders and some voices around the world. So these are four points that I wanted to uh, bring to the fore before giving the, the, the floor to uh, 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 my colleague and just a few uh, words about uh, uh, Dr. Matthew uh, Walton, Hansan Sushi, a senior research fellow in modern Burmese studies at St. Anthony's College. Here, his research focuses on religion and politics in Southeast Asia with a special emphasis on Myanmar. So, uh, he will talk for half an hour because we decided for, for a bit more or a bit less, depending uh, on the, uh, the way it goes. But what is important for us is to have enough time for you to comments or uh, to comment or to ask questions. So the floor is yours and thank you for being with us again. Great. Well, last time we had an event in this room, actually all the times that I've spoken in this room, I haven't used the microphones. Um, so I'm, I'm feeling a little odd doing this because usually I'm pretty loud to do this, but I'll take the opportunity to speak a little more quietly. And uh, I hope you all realize what a great uh, sort of honor it is for you today that to be in the room when we resolve the Buddhist-Muslim conflict uh, in Myanmar. Um, I think uh, this has been a conundrum for for a lot of us. Uh, you know, working in the country, um, it, there's obviously a lot, a lot more attention on the country, a lot more people uh, who, who are working in Myanmar. Um, and and it, for a lot of people, it's very perplexing to, to think about, you know, there's been a democratic transition after decades and decades of, of repressive military rule, a democratic transition since 2011, but what's accompanied those signs of, uh, of, of progress, of, of real opening up in some cases, uh, is significant um, violence uh, elsewhere, violence and discrimination elsewhere. And so, apologies. Uh, one of the areas that we've seen sort of renewed violence is in ethnic conflict in the country, of course, uh, months after the, the takeover or the changeover to a semi-civilian government, the military renewed its attacks on uh, the Kachin independence organization in the north uh, and has also been fighting with other ethnic groups. But one of the most compelling and, and, and troubling uh, sort of concerns in, in Myanmar's transition right now and what we're talking about tonight 
is the anti-Muslim violence and campaigns of discrimination by Buddhists against Muslims since uh, 2012. And I'll, I'll start out by saying that, you know, while, while we've seen discrimination and violence against Muslims across the country differently situated, uh, it's worth reiterating at every possible turn that the Rohingyas uh, are probably the most put upon of, of any, um, of any population in the world, let alone Muslim populations in Myanmar. Um, this is a, a Muslim minority, uh, initially of Bengali descent, that um, that lives in Bangladesh, else, elsewhere, and then in Western Myanmar in Rakhine State, um, that uh, has had a presence in Myanmar for uh, centuries, if not longer. Um, and their situation is complicated, of course, by a very porous border and, and by um, both legal and illegal migration. Uh, but the Rohingya have been functionally stateless in Myanmar for, for decades. Nobody else in the region wants them. The Thai uh, military is notorious for seeing boats of Rohingya uh, who have braved, uh, you know, braved the seas coming towards their shores and sending them back out to die in the midst of the ocean. Um, and, and within Myanmar and Rakhine State, there's a significant IDP population of Rohingya uh, since the violence has come out. And the government, of course, has denied that they are an indigenous ethnic group or even that they can be called an ethnic group um, in Myanmar, which is something that I'll, I'll get back to in a moment. So I want to talk through three I, I see a lot of faces of people who have heard me talk about this topic or aspects of this topic three or four times in the last four months, and you'll be glad to know that I'm, I'm going to focus on some things that we I haven't talked about, um, and, and more on a kind of brief description of some of the dynamics of the conflict, but then getting more into policy prescriptions uh, in ways that, that the Buddhist community in, in Myanmar is working to resolve the conflict, um, and ways that that can be supported both by... Um, uh, from Buddhists elsewhere, and then also from a sort of more general policy. So let's talk just briefly about some of the dynamics in this conflict. And 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 one of the one of the aspects here that's really important to to think about are the effects of rumors and unfounded fears about uh, Muslims and about Islam. So um, you have this narrative of a demographic takeover, right? Of a fear that that Buddhism is under threat. Uh, in Myanmar, that Muslims, that, that the, the Muslim Rohingya are just the first part of a, um, what should we say, a, a sort of global takeover in this case. And um, this narrative, I think, it's important to distinguish the, between the ways in which this narrative looks ludicrous from a national or global standpoint, and the ways in which it's very visceral and real in a place like Rakhine State, where Rakhine Buddhists have actually seen them, themselves uh, have seen their numerical dominance be eroded gradually over time. So we need to, to pay close attention to that. We also need to think about the ways in which the census, uh, we also need to think about the ways in which an upcoming census that's about to start next month is potentially going to complicate and inflame uh, what's going on in the country. So um, in past censuses have not really had very accurate descriptions of the, the potential numbers in the country. Um, and the previous estimates were at 4%. Uh, the Muslim population was at 4%. Uh, there's good evidence to suggest that that was a minimization, right? That, that, that the books were cooked and that the Muslim popula population a few decades ago was actually closer to 10%. What that means is if we get an accurate count this time around in 2014, we're going to see 
numbers above 10%, 11, 12, who knows how high. And while it's important to collect accurate numbers, you're, you can all see where, where that feeds a perception, right? A fear among the Buddhist community that, oh my gosh, from 4% to 12%, look at what's happening. This justifies our concern that we're being overwhelmed by Muslims. Um, so this, this fear of a demographic takeover is, is fueled by, by rumor and, and um, by misunderstanding of, of, of the actual sort of data in the this, in this situation. There's also misinformation about Islamic practices um, and about uh, sort of what Muslims do on a regular basis. Buddhists in, in Myanmar don't really have a good sense of, of what Islamic practice is, um, of what their neighbors do when they go to the mosque. Um, I, I had an interesting conversation with, with a Buddhist friend who has lots, who's a democratic activist, who has lots of, of Muslim friends. And, you know, and, and over the last two years, as this has been uh, escalating, he was reflecting, he was saying, you know, I have all these Muslim friends in in Yangon and in other places, and I've never been inside a mosque in Myanmar, right? And and it makes sense why Muslim religious communities have been closed. They've been persecuted by the state, right? But but this has also kind of fueled a sense of fear and of misunderstanding about what happens, what Islam is, what Muslims do. This has also been fueled by, I think, the framing that Tarek mentioned of the global war on terror. Right. So you've seen even Dawn Sun Suu Kyi make reference to this in, in an interview while she was here in the UK saying, well, you must admit that there's a general perception that Muslims are, you know, dot, dot, dot. Right. And, and, and she and she kind of invoked this as a justification of Buddhist fears in the country. Um, and th this global war on, on terror framing has actually added some new elements to let's say, old rumors in Myanmar about um, Muslims and, and about the sort of fear of Islamic takeover. So uh, we've seen for, for actually for decades in Myanmar, there have been rumors uh, or accusations that Muslim men um, uh, steal Buddhist women, right? That they entrap Buddhist women with uh, promises of money and then they marry them and then the women become not Buddhist. They have to become Muslim, then their children become Muslim and this sort of erodes the Buddhist population. The contemporary twist put in the context of the global war on terror is that the money to buy off these days, what, what Buddhist monks are preaching in Myanmar is that it, the, the money that comes to buy off these Buddhist women and to buy them in comes from Saudi oil money, right? So you, you get this sense and it, whether it's true or not, it resonates with these frames, right? And as I said this afternoon, it resonates with a very superficial view of Islam, um, which is, is, is sort of promulgated through the global entertainment industry, right? Burmese Buddhists are buying pirated DVDs on the streets of, of uh, the cities in the country. And what do they see? I mean, they don't see complex depictions of, of Islamic life or, or um, sympathetic depictions of Islamic life. They see Muslim terrorists in those films, right? And, and that's the superficial uh, image that they get that's reinforced here. And so it doesn't take much more than a reference to Saudi oil money um, to, to point to a broader conspiracy. Another aspect of this that's, uh, I think, important to understand is that Buddhist groups in Myanmar have justified discrimination and violence against Muslims as a necessary response, both to the imminent threat of Islam's expansion in Asia, but also its encroachment upon the Buddhist community, right? And a fear that Buddhism itself is under threat, right? Not just specific Buddhists, but, but Buddhism itself. And in a situation like this, 
Buddhists um, in Myanmar and elsewhere have argued that discriminatory or violent actions taken against non-Buddhist communities, th things that might seem counter to Buddhist values of compassion and equanimity, are justified if they're undertaken in defense of Buddhism, in defense of the Buddhist community. Uh, the word that, that Buddhists use to describe this is sasana, and the sasana refers to the texts, the teachings, the monastic community, the lay community, the pagodas, right? Everything that encapsulates Buddhism is the sasana. And so if, if it's framed as a threat to the sasana, if Islam is framed as a threat to the sasana, it justifies any kind of action. This, this argument about the threat to the sasana also effectively conflates religious and national and sometimes ethnic identities as well, where the, def the defense of the religion is seen as the defense of the nation and vice versa. There's a long tradition of justifying violence in this way in the Theravada world, so it, it, it resonates um, both in sort of ancient texts and stories, but also in more modern ones uh, as well. Um, a famous uh, Thai monk in the 1970s who said it wasn't a sin to kill a communist, it was a meritorious act to kill a communist because it would be defending Buddhism from the dangers of communism. This is an incredibly difficult uh, argument to respond to and to refute because no Buddhist can really afford to be seen as not defending Buddhism right, or not sticking up for the defense of the religion. And so it's, it's a really challenging thing to figure out how one ought to respond to that. And then the final dynamic before I get into some of these responses is that one part of defending the sasana is not just the sort of the, the, the act of discrimination or violence, it's, it's promoting Buddhism. It's promoting Buddhist learning, moral practice, things like that. And, and monks who are, are involved in 969, which is the, the most prominent sort of anti-Muslim movement, and their supporters, they usually characterize their movement in this way. Right? They, don't, they don't say that they're anti-Muslim, right? They say that all of their actions are designed to support Buddhism, to protect Buddhism. And again, difficult to refute because they are engaging in other practices. They're setting up Buddhist Sunday schools and they're designing curricula to teach children about proper moral practice, right? So number one, difficult to refute. Number two, particularly difficult to parse out what looks, what is support for anti-Muslim activities and what is support for pro-Buddhist activities, right? I say that not to, um, uh, to take away any blame from people who might support 969, uh, you know, and, uh, without wanting to endorse the, the anti-Muslim activities. But I think it's really important for us to understand that in many ways, parts of this anti-Muslim movement look like good Buddhism, right? And exactly like what we would expect Buddhists um, to do. The other thing in framing this anti-Muslim movement as merely promoting or protecting Buddhism it creates space for monks to be involved and to take uh, a leading role, right? So traditionally monks are not supposed to be involved in politics. It's a, uh, it's a worldly activity. It gives you attachment, right? It gives you desire. It gets you all riled up as politics ought to, and monks are not supposed to be doing those sorts of things. But a traditional and always accepted role for monks is to be defending the religion and promoting the religion. And so by framing it this way, it allows monks to engage in politics and to say things um, that they might never otherwise be allowed to say and to promote hatred in, in many ways. Okay, so that's some of the dynamics of the movement. Let me talk about a few of the responses within Myanmar and we'll start with some of those. 
for a long time, uh, Tarek had talked about the silence. And, and one of the most resounding silences after uh, Dasu's was from the state Sangha Mahanayaka Council, this, uh, this sort of state organized body of the top Buddhist monks in the land who issue edicts about doctrine and occasionally say this monk is heretical and, and, and things like that, and occasionally discipline monks. And for a long, long time, they said nothing, actually, from, from throughout all of 2012. And it wasn't until September 2nd, 2013, that the state Sangha Mahanayaka Council made a statement, finally. And their statement was very interesting, because what it did was it barred the creation of monastic organizations that use the 969 logo. Right? This 969 logo, uh, so really briefly, uh, 9, 6, and 9 are sacred numbers. Uh, 9 is the number of uh, great qualities of the Buddha. 6 is the number of great qualities of the Dharma, his teachings. 9 is the number of the great qualities of the Sangha, the community of monks. And so 969 is a shorthand for Buddhism, and this is the name of the the movement that's been most prominent in Myanmar anti-Muslim activities. And the State Sangha Mahanayaka Council said, you can't create a monastic organization that uses this logo, period. And, and it was clear the next day the limits of what they were going to say because the, the leading Buddhist monks in the 969 movement said, you know, it's right. The State Sangha Mahanayaka Council uh, has jurisdiction over us as monks but they don't have jurisdiction over lay people. So what we're going to do is we're going to form lay monastic organizations that they don't have any, uh, any uh, jurisdiction over, and we'll be fine. We'll keep doing exactly what we've done, which is what they did. And, and I think it makes it clear that, the, that the, the message from the Buddhist authorities at that point was, we want to protect the image of Buddhism rather than encourage right practice or protect any minority non-Buddhist communities, right? They were concerned about how Buddhism looked with the Time magazine cover equating it to terrorism and things like that. Um, but on a, on a better note, there have been public sermons by Buddhist monks calling for coexistence, uh, denouncing violence between ethnic and religious groups. And while these while the circulation of these, I think, has paled in comparison to the anti-Muslim sermons that are spread on Facebook and YouTube and other places, they are there, right? And, and they, do, they are gradually kind of gaining ground and gaining an audience. Buddhist monks have been involved in local initiatives, some that are public, some that are under the radar, where they're working across religious lines. Uh, in Mandalay, groups, um, monks set up a committee that would respond to misinformation and rising tensions, right? To try to stop rumors before they turned into riots. This happened also in Molimya, in a city in Mon State, which was actually the sort of birthplace of the, the modern 969 movement. And uh, particularly surprising that in, in the sort of heartland of anti-Muslim Buddhist organizing at that point, there wasn't any violence in Molomyan. And many people attribute it to this multi-faith uh, group that got together and essentially bullied their own communities into not fighting each other. So monks have been leading those things. They've been leading courses for these um, anti-Muslim monks to get together, analyze the broader political economic context, present Buddhist arguments in support of peace coexistence. They've organized humanitarian efforts, relief to uh, victims of the recent violence, and that includes Muslim victims of violence. Uh, in Yangon, I talked uh, probably almost a year ago now with, with one um, prominent Muslim leader who said that at any time he was able to, he had a direct line to a group of 
Buddhist monks who he could call on to come and protect a mosque or a school or a Muslim neighborhood, right? So there were Buddhist monks who were on the front lines, who were offering themselves, uh, you know, almost as, as shields. And, and the most compelling one was the story of a monk named Uwituta, uh, who in, in Metila, a city that was hit with, with riots last year, provided sanctuary to hundreds of Muslims in his monastery. And the crowds came to the front door of his monastery demanding to be let in. He stood outside the gate. He said, you'll have to kill me to get to the people who are inside. And they eventually moved on. And, and his response to this was so simple and yet so compelling. He said, I was doing this in accordance with Buddha's teachings. You help people who are in need, people who are in trouble, right? So a very simple response. And you can see that, of course, there are these doctrinal Buddhist responses that, um, that draw on Buddhist values that monks have, have invoked uh, in these cases. But a real complicating factor is the general unease that, that monks and, and lay Buddhists would feel with, about criticizing fellow monastics in public. Right? So one monk activist said that there are clearly divides within the monks. Right? You have Saffron Revolution monks from the 2007 protest. You have 1988 generation monks from the 1988 protest. And they don't necessarily all buy into these anti-Muslim narratives. Um, but they have less power. They have less of a platform. They can't be seen as directly criticizing these other monks. Not to mention the fact that uh, you know many of those monks from these former protest movements have uh, been thrown in jail. Their rank, their ranks are thin from having been repressed by the government in the past. So the unwillingness to criticize fellow monks is is there in monastic rules and values where you're not supposed to be seen as splitting the sangha, the community of monks, but also social and political pressure. So. Um, so monks who speak out against the anti-Muslim uh, discourse are often criticized from all sides and accused of not being a true Buddhist. Right? Again, this is a really difficult thing to respond to. How could a monk be seen as not defending Buddhism? So this adds a, a, an equal amount of pressure. Tarek also mentioned the, the political pressures. Um, you know, Don Sansuchi is not the only person who faces political pressures in this case to uh, there's going to be an election in 2015, hopefully a slightly freer and slightly fairer election than in 2010. Um, but if it's going to be freer and fairer, that means that you have to start appealing to the voters. And with a significant Buddhist majority, you can see that there are lots of pressures on political figures um, to not say anything that's going to antagonize the Buddhists. But so, you know, you, you've heard a little bit of, of, of these counter movements and activities to counter it. But if there's going to be a stronger narrative that's raised within Myanmar, within the Buddhist community in Myanmar, it's going to have to be sensitive to all of these different political concerns, social pressures, cultural pressures, and also grounded in Buddhist frames, Buddhist frames that are, are particularly Myanmar Buddhist frames. Um, and so I'll talk through a few of those uh, that, that people have been discussing and, and, and sort of starting to uh, try to deploy in this conversation. So one, and those of you who are familiar with Buddhism will recognize a lot of these, uh, one of the challenges is that um, the sort of engaged Buddhist community in Asia and in the West, I think often appeals to a sort of universalized sense of Buddhism, right? Where you can just sort of pick and choose from these values that we associate with Buddhism. Um, and what we've seen in the Myanmar case is that, that Burmese Buddhists have been very uh, skeptical of, um, skeptical is, is a 
not a strong enough word. They have rejected uh, views from international Buddhists, people like the Dalai Lama, but also um, even other Theravada Buddhists. So Sulak Sivaraksa, uh, famous, famous and somewhat controversial Thai uh, religious teacher, he's gone to Myanmar several times and uh, the monastic response to him has been, that's great. You preach what you want, but your Buddhism is different than ours, so don't expect us to listen to it. Um, but but so a few things that are rooted in in the Burmese uh, in the Burmese uh, sort of Buddhist cultural imaginary, the notion of right speech. Right? This is part of the eightfold noble path that the Buddha laid out of of the proper practices that one would need to get to um, to to perfect in order to get to enlightenment. And one of them is is right speech, which uh, is broken down into abstaining from harsh and malicious speech, abstaining from idle speech that doesn't lead anywhere, and also abstaining from falsehood, from lies. This is something that is in its early stages, but some uh, uh, the beginnings of a movement uh, in civil society in Myanmar to start to counter dangerous speech. And this is a, a discourse that's been around in, in religious communities um, interfaith communities for a while, but to, to try to not get specific about anti-Muslim speech or anti-Buddhist speech, but to just talk more generally about the common ground on dangerous speech. Um, an, another uh, sort of avenue of, of, um, of inquiry there is, is with regard to the Brahma Viharas, the, the sort of four um, top Buddhist values or characteristics, and these are Mieta, Metta, loving-kindness, Karuna, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, and upeka, equanimity. Right? And these are, these are the kinds of things that uh, I, I, I was reluctant to sort of bring them in here because I think that frequently what, what we do when we talk about sort of Buddhism and peace or religions and, and peace and peace building is, is we, we identify these values that ought to be there. Right, these values that Buddhists ought to oh, of course, that compassion, loving kindness, right? These things, and and they're they're present in every religion, right? They're present in the discourse of uh, Buddhists constantly, um, just like they're present in the discourse of, of Muslims and, and Christians. But the challenge is in figuring out how to how to enact them, right? How to introduce them as primary motivators. Uh, in in um, in a particular conflict, and and I think one of the ways that that Burmese Buddhists are, are talking about these now is the Brahma Viharas, these four characteristics, as a direct response to um, the three poisons or the three primary drivers of suffering in the Buddhist tradition, which are greed, hate, and ignorance. Right. So by cultivating these other ones, it it ought to be a response to uh, greed, hate, and ignorance, which are these three drivers of conflict. Um, Another narrative that's slowly started to come out that, that we've seen in the Burmese tradition in the past and, and also in other Buddhist traditions is the idea of, of testing claims, right? Of responding to rumor by looking for truthfulness. And, and this, this comes from the Kalama Sutta, uh, which is something that sort of modernist Buddhists often cite, but it is something that more monks in the country have been preaching about. And so in the Kalama Sutta, uh, the Buddha was asked by some of, uh, by members of a community, they had been visited by lots of religious teachers, and they said, well, who do we believe, right? Do we believe you? Do we believe this guy who visited us last week? And the Buddha said, don't believe any of us for any of these reasons of tradition or prestige or, um, or because your parents told you or because I told you or anything. Investigate these things for yourself and find out whether or not they're true. So this is something that 
the, the Burmese monk Sidigu Seado uh, alluded to in a, in a speech um, a speech or sermon in Yangon, saying, you know, the Buddha asked us to only see what we can what we can verify, not to take rumors and hearsay on face value, responding to these concerns that that what fuels a lot of these conflict is ignorance and um, and a desire to just latch on to to any kind of rumor. I mentioned uh, before this concern about defending the sasana, right, and how difficult it is to refute the the um, the injunction to defend Buddhism, and it's always relied on this sort of ends justifies the means logic, where the preservation of the Buddhist community as a whole allows Buddhists to act in these ways that contravene their basic moral teachings. But a different argument would, or a different response would be to argue that a commitment to democratic principles and religious pluralism wouldn't be in opposition to the defense of the sasana, and actually would be a more effective mode of defense, right? That, that it's not an external group that harms the Buddhist community. It's the actions of Buddhists in contradiction to key Buddhist values that harm the Buddhist community, right? This is something that we're, we're just seeing the beginnings of in the Burmese context. And I'll give you a quote from a, a, a monk in Mandalay who said, when asked about these arguments, he said, quote, in my opinion, you don't have to protect the religion. It will protect itself. It's been strong enough to survive for nearly 3000 years. Defense of the sasana means you, you follow the practice, you give right direction to the people. That's all it means. Acting like these 969 monks do does not protect our religion, it only invites enemies, right? Working the logic through to show that one version of defending the sasana is actually endangering the sasana more, whereas a different version of defending it could, could really strengthen it in certain ways. So I wanna emphasize the importance how important it is that Buddhist responses to anti-Muslim uh, violence and, and discrimination have to come from and be situated within the Burmese Buddhist imaginary, right? And, and, and within Burmese Buddhist cultural values, and not just within Burmese Buddhist cultural values, because part of what's going on is not just about a Burmese Buddhism writ large in the nation, but there are ethnic variations in, uh, in Buddhism there as well. And so there are Rakhine Buddhist practices that are important to be able to distinguish them from the majority Buddhists, right? And, and an important aspect of this that I'm about to get to is that the Rakhines have felt put upon from sort of every side. They've, they've felt put upon from the West, from Muslims and, and hundreds of years of, of incursions from Muslim kingdoms, they felt put upon from the East by a majority Burman Buddhist nation. And so giving Rakhine Buddhists an opportunity, and I, I would say more moderate <laughs> Rakhine Buddhists, an, an opportunity to talk through their own Buddhist views without universalizing them in any way, I think is gonna be a really important part of this. But these doctrinal efforts are not going to be enough, right? There's, there's so much going on here that, that the efforts from within Buddhism are going to have to be complemented by uh, policy uh, changes in, in a lot of other areas. So I'll go through those relatively quickly here. First is economic concerns, right? I agree that this is not a religious conflict, right? It's been framed in religious terms. It's fueled by religious logics and, and religious framing. But, um, but it comes, particularly in Rakhine State, from uncertainty and anxiety about this transition, 
about economic development, about political change, about who's going to share in the benefits, who's going to access the, you know, all the, the, Asia's last frontier of Myanmar, who's going to get the benefit of that. Rakhine State is the second poorest state in the country, um, and Rakhines are, are deeply concerned about a number of development projects in their state uh, that are about to explode and make a lot of people a lot of money and not make Rakhines a lot of money, right? So, uh, so part of this is going to be responding to the economic insecurities that are present across the entire Burmese population. Another concern is going to be about the, the, the challenges that religion faces uh, when confronted with modernization and modernity. Right? So you, you, you've seen this in Buddhist societies uh, as, as, they've, um, as they've confronted modern values, Western values. Uh, how will Buddhism change? How is it going to lose its central position? Is it going to lose its moral standing as, as Myanmar develops, as women start wearing shorter skirts, as people start listening to rap music and rock music, right? And all these sorts of things. These religious insecurities are there and they're very real, right? And, and so one, one thing to consider are state policies that, that recognize um, and protect religious or cultural traditions that would also acknowledge Rakhine fears of not only Rohingya Muslims, but of, of Burman Buddhists as well. Um, this is something that I think we, we really haven't paid any, almost any attention at all to in, in this sort of Burmese opening up. It's, it's a celebration of Myanmar opening up, um, but, but one of the things that under, underlies these uh, fears is that insecurity about the position of the religion. It's going to be really important to promote religious transparency. And I want to quickly um, qualify this by saying I'm, I'm, I don't intend this as a kind of blame the victim. I mentioned the, the, the anecdote before about Burmese Buddhists not really knowing uh, what goes on in the mosques in, in, in Myanmar. Um, and so this is not suggesting that, that Muslims in Myanmar have brought any of this violence on themselves by not inviting other people in, but, but recognizing that, in, that one way of assuaging Buddhist fears is in increased transparency in Islamic teaching and preaching. And it doesn't only refer, it doesn't only uh, apply to sort of Muslim teaching in the country. This would apply also to Buddhist teaching as well in Christianity and, and more transparency about what happens in these religious contexts. And this is actually something that uh, Muslim le leaders in the country have been talking about a lot more. They've been talking about um, for a lot of the more moderate Muslim leaders, they've expressed fears that in many cases they don't know what's being preached in in mosques or or taught in madrasas and so this has been an unfortunate trigger but has been a trigger for them to to get for for everyone involved to get a better sense of what's being taught um and preached uh, in the country there's going to have to be clarity about uh citizenship laws in the country um, I'm not going to get into the details here, but most Rohingya are effectively not citizens under the 1982 citizenship law. There's There's been a government plan not yet instituted really to issue white cards that would give a kind of path to citizenship or to confirm the fact that many Rohingya already were issued white cards in the lead up to uh, previous elections. And there are two challenges here. One is that there's increased opposition in the country to making that white card path a path to citizenship, right? So this, the government policy now is not necessarily going to solve the problems here. Number two, Rakhine State is 
um, you know, it, it, it's essentially a, 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 I don't want to call it a war zone, but it's a conflict zone, right? People are, have had their whole, whole neighborhoods burned down. They're living in refugee camps. These are the kinds of conditions in which no one can be expected to hang on to the documentation that will prove their citizenship, right? So, so legal uh, clarity, right, or a clear law on citizenship itself is not going to be enough, right? There's going to have to be um, some sort of path, some sort of clarity on what happens to people who are not considered citizens at the time. I'm not going to weigh in on what that ought to be. I think that that is in many ways, I mean, that that is in many ways a, a domestic uh, um, issue, right? But at the very least, clarity is necessary. Also going to have to be further legal and political protections. Um, there's going to be significant resistance from the Buddhist mi majority and the Burman majority uh, to minority protections that are either written into the constitution or enacted uh, through laws, but it's going to be absolutely necessary. It's going to be necessary to counter decades and decades of institutionalized inequality. In some cases in the world, social opinion, a changes in social opinion precede legal change, right? And so it's the groundswell of support from a population that eventually convinces a judiciary and a parliament to change laws. I think it's unlikely that that's going to happen in Myanmar. I think it's more likely that you're going to be able to rely on a few um, brave, more progressive leaders who are willing to implement a legal framework that can then be enacted to protect um, minority populations, and that over time, you're going to change uh, the mindset of people who don't trust them. You need to encourage moderate Rakhine uh, Buddhists. There are few of them, but they have been taking big risks. Uh, I mean, the, the situation in Rakhine State has been one where Rakhine Buddhists who are seen as um, even talking to Rohingyas, right? Let alone trading with them or helping them out with, with their humanitarian needs, are, are themselves in danger of being attacked, shunned by their communities, right? The the the, the few brave people in in the Rakhine community need to be supported. Their voices need to be supported there. Um, and then finally, all of this is connected to the broader project of political reform. Uh, constitutional change and decentralization of power in the country. Right? So there's no talk of a, of a sort of Muslim state or, or anything, or, or that there would be territory given to the Rohingya. That, that isn't what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is that, that there have been, it's, it's decades and decades of a sort of centralized political, um, centralized unitary political system. Part of what fuels Rakhine fears and other ethnic minority fears of the presence of Rohingya is the fact that they don't have any effective control over the decisions made in their states, over administrative decisions, excuse me, over economic decisions. Decentralization, devolution of power is going to be absolutely necessary to create a framework within which these anxieties and insecurities can start to be addressed. So the title of this panel was a sort of Pandora's box, right? Resolving, dealing with Myanmar's Pandora's box. And I think, I hope that in this somewhat rambling talk, you've seen the complexity, the interconnectedness of these insecurities, these anxieties, and these grievances. And it's gonna require a multifaceted set of responses. In some cases, it's going to be supporting initiatives within the Buddhist community, 
right? In some cases, it's going to be supporting the government in creating more effective policies. In some ways, it's going to be challenging the government to live up to their own policies or to create not just stronger legal frameworks, but, but fair and equitable and just implementation. The metaphor that a lot of people use to think through the current transition overall in the country is how do we promote how do we continue to promote democratic change, democratic reform without spooking the military, right? Without causing a backlash. This is everyone's fear is that the milita military uh, still holds all the cards because the cards are the guns, right? And, and without Western countries having uh, demonstrated that they're willing to do anything more than slap a few sanctions on, uh, it's unlikely that if the military decides to, to seize power again, anybody's going to stop them. So the question that people ask is, well, how, how do we promote this kind of democratic change without spooking the military? And I think we can transfer this metaphor away from the national politics to these kind of religious politics. It's to say, how do we balance the need to respond to the pressing humanitarian moral dilemma of repression that Islamic minorities in, in Myanmar face with the need to also respond to very real fears from, from the Buddhist population and to bring the Buddhist population along so that this these conflicts, these divides aren't, aren't further uh, entrenched. So with that, I'll end. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Matthew, about that. Before just opening the floor, just one question, because you ended with this multifaceted, uh, sorry, this uh, multifaceted approach which is needed. And, and as we uh, uh, heard from your presentation, it's very complex and many, many factors are playing here. Uh, we agreed on the fact that it's not a religious conflict. Yet, we had a discussion this afternoon, you, you came back to this now, but we are talking about uh, economic factors, demographic, demographic factors, we are talking about uh, a sense of belonging, what is a nation, who we are, the identity thing, uh, uh, the war on terror, but still, there is something which is a problem that we can find in, at the end, in every single religion, when it comes to interpretations, where people are saying, responding to some Buddhists, and, and the Dalai Lama said it, he said, I talked to them, and at the end, th there is something which is, we have different interpretations. We are in a situation where, on the threat, in the name of our values, we have the right to do what we are doing. Going as far as what you said this afternoon, these people are not even human beings, because they are, uh, they are outside uh, uh, even our universe of reference. So if we want to solve this, don't we need something which is needed everywhere, which is a very deep and courageous internal dialogue, intra-community dialogue among Buddhists? And don't we, uh, can't we expect also the international community to be much more involved in this? Because at the end, it's as if it's very local, but it's not. At the end, it's not local. Nothing is local in this conflict. Right. No, I, I think that that's absolutely a part of it. And, and one of the challenges that, you know, that Buddhists around the world have, have faced it, it, with regard to, to Myanmar, Sri Lanka, uh, to some degree, southern Thailand, is how do, we, how do we respond, right? How do we respond effectively when Burmese Buddhists, in this case, have 
shown very little in inclination to listen to to outsiders, right, to to, to foreigners, um, and and I think that that the two things need to happen. I mean, I think one the it's going to have to, all of these other factors, right, that you pointed to, that's part of it, but the internal part is going to be critical as well, right? If you don't sway the monkhood eventually, you, you don't make a change, right? Be, and, and, and it's unfortunate that we have not, we've, I, I alluded to a few, you know, sort of public figures who are speaking out more and more, um, but we, we've, we've either seen negative um, reinforcement from some top ranks of, of the Buddhist hierarchy, or we've seen real mixed messages. Right? Um, and that's been that's been a problem because what, what it allows people to do is to continue to hold these sort of seemingly contradictory ideas that Buddhism is a religion of peace, yet we need to sort of kick out this foreign population. And, and so one, one example um, is that, uh, that probably the most famous monk in Myanmar is a monk named Sidigu Seado. I mentioned uh, a sermon that he gave. Um, he's, he's, I think he's hands down the most, most famous monk, and he has taken a lead role in a number of these interfaith dialogues, and, and he's gone with Muslim leaders to, uh, to conflict-hit areas in Rakhine State and Metila, these other places. And um, he, he has provided these messages of peace and coexistence and dialogue at the, while at the same time reinforcing incredibly problematic views. So an example is he went to Rakhine State with some Muslim leaders. They all gave sermons and talks to their respective communities. And while he was talking to a group of, of Muslims in, in Rakhine State, uh, the example that he chose from, from the, uh, the scriptures, or I think the Jataka tales stories of the Buddhist past life, was uh, to talk about how one ought to... Um, act as a guest in another's home and how the homeowner ought to act towards guests who treat him or her well, right? So invoking these codes of conduct that, 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 um, that tell you to, you know, treat other people well, but of course reinforcing the notion that these Muslims are guests in Myanmar, right? And, and, and reinforcing that. So, so we get really problematic multiple messages here um, and, and I think what it comes down to is, is there's very little room at this point for um, foreign Buddhist perspectives to, to be very influential. There's a lot of room, though, for supporting the Burmese Buddhist monks who are trying to develop these peace-oriented, uh, you know, tolerant um, things or different interpretations, as you say. And this is going to end up being a battle of interpretations. Do you take the defense of the sasana that requires fighting against somebody else, or do you take the defense of the sasana that requires turning inward and, and defending the sasana through your, your moral conduct yourself? And so, you know, it's going to be about supporting the monks uh, who are inclined to do that and, and making sure that that interpretation holds the day. We have to uh, end here because uh, uh, it's just the time. So thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank you.